Well, welcome to this, the 10th uh, Palestine Deep Dive. Uh, this time we're delighted to be joined by Gideon Levy in Tel Aviv and Chris Doyle in London. Uh, you'll be familiar with both, but for those uh, who are watching for the first time, Gideon is an Israeli journalist and author, writes opinion pieces and a weekly column for the newspaper Haaretz and the frequently focuses in or his work on the Palestinian occupied territories. Chris is the director of the Council for Arab British Understanding and its lead spokesperson. Uh, as a, an acknowledged expert on the region, Chris of course is a frequent uh, commentator on TV, radio and print. Um, many of us are familiar with both of your work over the years and we're very grateful uh, for you to, for joining us today. I'm Mark Seddon. I was Al Jazeera's uh, UN correspondent for a number of years in New York. I subsequently worked for Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General. And uh, today I'm hosting Palestine Deep Dive. This was a day, July the 1st, we were led to believe could be an announcement from the Israeli government on the annexation of up to 30% of the Jordan Valley in the West Bank. Uh, we haven't heard any developments as yet, um, but uh, before we go any further, I should perhaps just ask Gideon, uh, you're there. Uh, can you update us on the situation? There's nothing to update because nothing is going to happen today, but this does not mean that it's off the table. It means that uh, things don't go as smooth as uh, some of the settlers would like to see, but it's not the end of the process, it's just the beginning. And then people here say, they, I mean, the guns uh, said yesterday that there are no holy dates, and still to come, we should wait uh, one, two, three weeks. I can't believe that it will be totally off the table, but don't also expect a huge mega annexation. It will be something in between. I mean, is, uh, is Netanyahu being frightened off by the, uh, the dalliance of the Trump administration, if you like? The Trump administration appeared to have got slightly cold feet. Um, is, do you think that's playing into all of this? Are they, is, is, the, is he simply waiting on Trump's say-so? The key is obviously in Trump's hands. Without Trump, the whole idea of annexation wouldn't come and wouldn't be uh, mentioned at all because Israel uh, could have uh, annexed the territories over the last 53 years and he never did so except of Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. And uh, uh, Donald Trump seems to have some other problems right now, much more urgent than this. Uh, he might give some kind of green light, but it must be very clear to all of us, like many other things, and we should get to them. Finally, with all the big rhetorics, the key is in the White House for the good and for the bad, for the continuous of the occupation, for ending the occupation. Mm. The main key is there. Uh, but there is a very, I'll come to you in a minute, Chris, if I may, but there's a, there's a, you, I would have thought a fairly narrow window um, because there are US presidential elections in November. So one assumes, and, and, and having read that uh, Benny Gantz has, uh, has also said, well, we don't have to stick to these dates as a lit, you know, as a, some kind of litmus test, that 
actually Netanyahu must be getting a bit concerned that he may not be able to proceed with his plans. First of all, both of us don't know what are Netanyahu's plans. Uh, his main plan is to survive in office, to overcome the legal troubles, the legal problems, the very serious problems and charges that he's facing. That's his main uh, problem. His second problem, which I don't underestimate, he would like to leave some kind of legacy not only the Prime Minister, the first acting Prime Minister who was brought to justice, but also to leave some kind of legacy. He never favored annexation until now, so I'm not sure that all his life he dreamt about this annexation because don't underestimate him, he knows the price. But by the end of the day, I would like just to give a small note about the fact that let's not over-dramatize the whole annexation because Israel's annexation of the West Bank started long time ago and will not end now. It's almost completed. It's now only about declaration and legal uh, aspects, which I don't underestimate. But by the end of the day, we are not turning from a very promising situation into a very um, uh, despairing situation. Not at all. Despair is there. Uh, inevitable facts were already created long time ago. 700,000 settlers are there, including East Jerusalem. Nobody is going to remove them. And the annexation is there and the green line is dead long time ago. Chris, I mean, t following from what Gideon says, I mean, uh, 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 nobody could really contest that. But at the same time, you do get the impression this is a kind of a turning point for the international community. It really, if it goes ahead, leaves this idea of a two-state solution uh, with nowhere to go. What's, nobody can really pretend that it's still there as a possibility. So do, do you really think that um, this time there has been some uh, effective international opposition to Netanyahu and that he's actually having to take this on board? I think there's actually been very minimal international opposition because the only opposition that Netanyahu will actually listen to is one that really will have teeth and consequences and what we have seen so far is really rather lame appeals to, to the Israeli government of please don't do it you know and we see today for example British Prime Minister Boris Johnson writing an article exactly in that vein, which basically spends most of the time saying what great friends Britain is with Israel and please don't do it. Now that simply is not gonna be enough because Israel is very well used to these sorts of copy paste press releases that come out of uh, Brussels and other European centers of power that, uh, and you can imagine officials sort of waking up every day and say, well, today, are we gonna say condemn or we're gonna say, uh, are we gonna say express uh, uh, disappointment or, or other phrases that they have this sort of little dictionary and, and, and game. No, the only thing really that will count is if there are serious consequences. And certain leaders have spoken about this. They've said that, you know, relationship will not be the same. Britain at one point was saying that uh, any annexation could not go unchallenged. Well, they refused to actually uh, outline what such measures would be. And I think actually, uh, as time goes by, it looks as if there will be very, very minimal. Uh, and I think that uh, Netanyahu, uh, Israeli government, uh, will, will live with that. I think 
a failure to do anything, of course, would have huge ramifications because it would just re-emphasize that Israel can do all of this. After all, don't forget, this isn't the first formal annexation. I mean, they annexed uh, uh, East Jerusalem in 1980 and then Golan Heights in 1981. There are Security Council resolutions then. They weren't implemented. So the lesson will be that Israel can continue to get away with anything. The settlers and the far right in Israel, like the center in Israel nowadays, will be able to say, look, Europeans will do absolutely nothing. As for the United States, uh, you know, it's quite clear that uh, Donald Trump is uh, very keen on being friendly with, uh, with Israel. I think that he wants to appeal to that uh, uh, evangelical vote for November the 3rd. He sees that as important. It might even now matter more to him than Netanyahu, arguably. Uh, well, Chris, you, you mentioned uh, Donald Trump there, and uh, you know we can't mention Trump without his great deal of the century, which really has uh, received no acclamation apart from uh, and, uh, amongst uh, some in Israel. Um, but I wonder if you could try and spell out, because a little bit more detail of what that actually meant in, in terms of the Trump administration accepting yet more annexation in, in contravention of international law. I mean, it, it, would, it would appear that there's been some kind of discussion between the Israelis and the Trump administration as to which parts of the West Bank they could take first. But I wonder if you could just give a bit of background to what, because a lot of people won't really know the sort of nitty gritty of what this Trump deal of the century is all about. Well, the, 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 the Trump deal that was concocted by Jared Kushner, but also uh, Israeli leaders, Israeli settlers, and it wasn't, of course, done with any consultation with Palestinians at all. Uh, essentially, yes, does see the annexation of large parts of the West Bank, perhaps up to about you know 30% of the West Bank, and it would leave a uh, Palestinian areas nominally in the Trump plan. It would be called a state. Even Netanyahu doesn't actually uh, agree with that. He says that if Trump wants to call this a Palestinian state, then he's welcome to to call it. But Israel would have full security control, control over borders, control over water. There would be no Palestinian airport or port as such. So it wouldn't have any of the essential ingredients of a viable state. It would be a, a really a joke of a state. So um, this annexation, of course, is goes way beyond, uh, as outlined in the Trump plan, anything that was put in, in previous plans. Um, it, it very much is a, a dream in, in many ways for, for the far right in Israel, uh, albeit some, of course, object to the, to, to the very idea that it could ever be even something even called a Palestinian state, that you even get that far. But frankly, I think that the, the Trump plan has flatlined uh, as such. If anything, the Palestinians are not going to get even some of the uh, small goodies that are the crumbs of the Trump plan that, that are there, all that 50 billion uh, that was promised uh, in terms of economic support, well, that's not going to materialize. Uh, so I think they're going to get even less than the Trump plan if you do get to a situation that they formally annex so much of the West Bank. Um, yeah, also, just staying with you, Chris, for a moment, I mean, uh, you, you are in Britain, uh, Kabu uh, is heavily involved in, in uh, lobbying and persuading the British governments, British political parties on the Palestinian issue. Do you see any any uh, sort of beginning of an understanding um, that essentially this kind of annexation that was so so strongly challenged when it came to the Crimea, for instance, 
the, the, the government stands accused of double standards if it does not threaten uh, and carry out similar sorts of sanctions with Israel as it did with Russia. You're right, there's an acute double standards. It took the European Union, including Britain at the time, 17 days to impose significant sanctions on Russia because of the annexation of the Crimea. And uh, I think a lot of people should be asking, you know, why is it different here? Uh, what's the difference? And, you know, it's not even that people are expecting that those sanctions to be as severe, uh, etc. We're not even getting quite mild uh, talk of, of sanctions at the moment. I think actually, for most governments in Europe, they just want this problem to go away because, you know, they have other things on their mind. They have the pandemic still. They have an economic meltdown really within Europe. So they hope that Israel doesn't go ahead with the annexation to put them on the spot as to what they're going to do. I think it would, you know, that would be for them a great relief. Of course, they're not going to do what Gideon referred to earlier to take any action on the, on the existing creeping annexation that's going forward. I mean. One can imagine, for example, that if there is no announcement on annexation, that Netanyahu will somehow assuage the anger of the settlers by some major settlement announcements. And uh, will Europe do anything? Will the United States do anything? The answer is probably no. So it'll go back to business as usual, taking more land and water. So I think, yeah, basically, I think most European Union states just don't want to see this happen. They don't want to have to come out and make tough statements and be put on the spot. It's a pretty bleak situation, really. And Gideon, I mean, I just wondered, if, you know, for, for those of us elsewhere in the world, um, uh, many who haven't had a chance to travel perhaps to Israel or the Palestinian territories, I wonder if you could just give us, given that the focus today is very much on the prospect of further annexation and the 30% uh, that we've been talked or up to 30%, of the Jordan Valley that we've been talking about. Can you give us some idea of the, 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 the land and the people? Um, you know, what are the demographics? Why does, why does Israel want this extra slice of Palestinian land? And, and why, because going back to what you're saying a minute ago, why is Netanyahu prepared to, to risk um, some relations that he's actually built up with um, some of the Gulf states in order to do this? Those are few questions. Let's do a brief uh, historical uh, uh, look. Uh, in '48, the Palestinians lost their land. Jews claimed that it is also their land, but the Palestinians were there for centuries, and in their eyes, this was their land. In '67, they lost some more of their land. And now the world is pushing Israel to return 22% of the historical Palestine to Palestinians. That's the minimal just compromise that anyone can even imagine himself. Yeah, we are dealing now with the left 22%, which is the West Bank and, and Gaza. About this 22%, Israel says no. So just to get the proportion, that's the proportion. The second proportion is that altogether four and a half million Palestinians are living under Israeli rule, 
in Gaza, it is this open cage, this open prison where the guards are outside the prison. In the West Bank, the guards are inside the prison, but both are kind of prisons. Four and a half million Palestinians living under a brutal military tyranny. And still Israel is perceived as the only democracy in the Middle East. And the West sees Israel as its darling, sharing the same values with the EU, and so forth and so forth. That's the situation right now. This situation might last for many, many years, more years, because the status quo is very convenient for everybody except of the Palestinians. Europe lives in peace with the lie that the occupation is there not to stay, but it is temp a temporary phenomena. Israelis, even Israelis with conscience, still believe that the territories are just, you know, cards for the negotiation, for the future negotiation. And, and even the Arab world eludes itself that the solution is around the corner. Just find a Palestinian partner, and Israel will return those 22% of the, of the lost land. But this was an illusion from the beginning, and this was a lie from the beginning, because Israel never had an intention to return the territories. Israel never meant to enable, to create a viable Palestinian state. And here I come to a moment of hope, maybe, because annexation might call the bluff. Mm. As Chris rightly said, the Europeans and the Americans just don't want now any kind of headache. It's not only about the coronavirus, because same things were before the pandemic and will be after the pandemic. By the end of the day, everyone was wants some kind of state of, of no noise, silence. And the status quo enabled silence. And under this silence, Israel had created the, the, the settlements project and made the occupation irreversible. An exception. I may just come in there. I mean, essentially, I, I'm, I hear what you say, and I imagine for a lot of uh, uh, European political leaders and uh, international leaders, uh, it's, it's going to be rather embarrassing if, if we effectively move towards a one-state solution, a greater Israel solution. But there is something that really doesn't get talked about a great deal, which is the, it's kind of self-defeating if you look at the demographics, because one would assume, and you tell me, if, let's say, for example, 30% of uh, the Jordan Valley is, is taken by Israel, th there are Palestinians who live, they join the growing number. And uh, are they going to have to be given a vote as, as, as Israeli citizens? Where does this, where does this lead to eventually? Does this really mean that uh, effectively uh, you, 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 you cannot run um, a, a kind of well, apartheid state, effectively. You cannot run an apartheid state on that sort of basis. First of all, I'm afraid to say you can, because Israel is doing it for the last 52 years, just before, be, without declaring it, without admitting it. And this is the core of the issue, because as long as the occupation was perceived as temporary, 
everyone lived in peace with it, and it was hard to define it as an apartheid. But once it is 52 years old, without any intentions, and without any direction to put an end to it, this masquerade must come to its end, and the annexation might be the challenge for Europe and for the United States, because now it will be really in front of their face, in front of our face, Israelis. Now you can't continue to claim that it is temporary. And if it's not temporary, it is an apartheid. And if it is an apartheid, it's for the world to decide. Are you ready to have another apartheid state, a second apartheid state? Or are you ready to take the same measures that you took yeah. our the first apartheid that, state? Um, Chris, sorry to interrupt you, Gideon. I mean, the, the, the issue of, uh, let's say, greater Israel, uh, a one-state solution effectively being created on the ground around us. It's been going on for some time, but this kind of, this proposed annexation really uh, puts the spotlight back on it. So, Chris, I mean, do you, th do you think, I mean, you see what's happening with public opinion to a degree in America, um, but do you think that um, there is, your, are you seeing a beginning of a shift again uh, towards uh, a popular support for the Palestinian cause in countries like Britain and elsewhere in Europe? I think that you've seen a shift in the United States. I think you see that within the, particularly within the Democrats. It's now a, a, a really serious division between the Republicans and certainly the progressive wing of the Democrat Party. I think in Britain for some time, generally at a public level, there is support for the Palestinians. The problem is that this is not translated into leadership levels, particularly in the uh, center and right wing. I don't think the Conservative Party is particularly keen on doing anything on the issue of Palestinians. I think that they see that the left is obsessed with the question of Palestine, and it is easy, therefore, to uh, turn this into a political weapon. They can say that this obsession on Palestine is evidence of uh, anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish sentiment within the left, and therefore to use it, uh, you know, to, to denigrate them as such, that's been successful, um, and, and allow them to, to stew in this. Um, so I think, you know, popularly there is there's a lot of support for Palestinians, and, you know, the annexation uh, issue certainly hasn't done Israel any favours in terms of public opinion. I, I think that there are a lot of, of, of people here who typically would be quite sympathetic to Israel who have come out and spoken against it. But once again, they're not necessarily keen on uh, supporting actions that would uh, change things. There has been some moves, for example, to support a ban on trade with settlement goods and services should annexation go forward. Uh, we've seen the Labour Party sign up to that uh, in the last month. Uh, which uh, would be welcome, but the government is not going down that path. Um, and, you know, the European Union generally, I think, is, is sympathetic, particularly in the Western European states. But they're not really prepared to take up the many tools that they could. They could kick mm. Israel out of the Horizon Research Program. It's one of the largest research programs in the world. It's very valuable to Israel. Israel gets a lot more out of it than it puts in. They could uh, demand that uh, settlers have to apply to visas. I mean, why should Palestinians have to apply for visa visas to go to the European Union, to Britain? Settlers come here visa-free. Uh, there are all sorts of mechanisms beyond sanctions. Sanctions would have to have, just to remind uh, listeners, 
uh, unanimity at a European Union level. Well, that's not going to happen. We see that Hungary, Poland, various other Eastern European countries would stop that. But there are things, particularly if France and Germany, the major powers, were to get behind that they could do, which would certainly make Israel uh, pause uh, to think about it. I just question the one thing that we're lacking here is, is political will. We have a real drought in political will. They don't want to do it. I mean, certainly uh, the, the pandemic seems to be uh, a, 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 a useful cover for inactivity and for focus elsewhere. But I just want to ask you another question, Chris, because, I mean, you follow these things in, in uh, the United States as well. I mean, the, um, there's been a shift within the Demo Democratic Party, clearly. Um, Bernie Sanders, when he was uh, a candidate for president, was espousing a much more um, pro-Palestinian uh, view. Uh, but also, interestingly, there appears to be some kind of um, debate within, you know, one of the big Israeli lobby organizations, AIPAC. It doesn't seem to be that the AIPAC aren't fully on side, uh, it would seem, uh, with this uh, latest annexation plan. What, what, what might be going on there? I think AIPAC is very con uh, conscious of its bipartisan status. It doesn't want to be uh, seen uh, to be taking a, a Republican uh, view on all of this, to be backing Trump. I think it's also conscious, of course, of the opinion polls. I mean, Trump is uh, heading south in, in the opinion polls. Uh, we could well see that the Democrats get hold of the Senate as well. So, I mean, I think they, they will look at that very carefully, as indeed will Israeli leaders. Uh, we may get a President Biden come January. I mean, a lot can change between now and then. Uh, one shouldn't write Trump off. Um, but it certainly isn't looking good for him right now. So I think AIPAC is, is very concerned that it would lose its bipartisan status. So already, it looks as if it is pretty pro-Likud, uh, pro-Netanyahu. Um, and therefore, to come out and say annexation is a really good thing, et cetera, uh, could be problematic for it. But I think I suspect APAC is, is quietly very happy if, uh, if annexation goes ahead and that Donald Trump wins in, in, in November. And, and Gideon, um, in Israel itself, I mean, we, I mean you, pe people such as yourselves often seem like lone voices, but it wasn't all that long ago when there were many, many more voices uh, that shared your opinions. Um, where do you think progressive opinion in Israel is, is moving? Um, is, it, is it going to refine uh, a degree of confidence? I mean, what, what is really happening to, the prog to progressive uh, opinion in Israel? The almost only discourse in Israel is between the radical right wing and the so-called moderate right wing left died, left is excluded, the real left for sure is excluded, it is labeled as partisan, as, 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 as being uh, betraying the country, as being self-hating Jew and all those uh, labels that you know, but practically there is no left in Israel. I mean, even those who, who consider themselves left, the Zionism the Zionist left is not a real left because by the end of the day, to, uh, to continue to believe that the Jews have a privilege in this piece of land over the Palestinians cannot be perceived as left. 
and I don't know how many, 95, 99 maybe percent of the Israeli Jews deeply believe that we gain privileges over the Palestinians. And I cannot define this as being leftist, I'm sorry. Well, um, if I may turn to you again, Chris, I mean, you, you mentioned briefly, this is a, the, uh, in the terms of British context, uh, uh, the, um, the, the opposition Labour Party actually did uh, call for um, limited uh, sanctions, especially uh, with trade with uh, settlements in the occupied territories, should this annexation go ahead. There's been another issue this past week of the dismissal of a, um, a member of the shadow cabinet, uh, which we won't go into necessarily right now, but it has, that whole issue did throw up something that some of us weren't necessarily aware of, that there has been clearly um, a very strong relationship between some police departments in uh, the United States with their counterparts in Israel. Um, and uh, I, I suppose I'm, I'd like to ask you, um, you know, to, 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 to be critical of that relationship, um, I mean, it, it, it can't really be construed to be uh, uh, anti-Semitic, can it? But that appears to be the view of some people, that you can't be critical of this. You can't be critical of this kind of security relationship without running into the view, the, 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 the claim that somehow you're being anti-Semitic. I mean, what do you make of that? I think there's a, an important caveat to your question here. I think the, the issue arose because not just because of the security relationship between Israeli forces and American forces, which we know is going on, but that actually the, the Israeli police forces were training American police forces to use the sort of lethal violence on civilians. And I think that that is the area of, of contest there as to whether that is a conspiracy theory, you can't back it up, that actually that is what they are training American police forces to do. And I think it's unwise to go down that path because you know the American police forces have used violence against civilians well before any relationship with uh, you know, Israeli police forces. And I don't think, um, you know, uh, if you want to go down that sort of conspiratorial line that the Israeli police forces would be, uh, the leadership would be uh, stupid enough to go over and tell the Americans how to uh, use. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think you're right. I mean, the, the, you have to you have to provide evidence for all of that. But I'm, I, I suppose the, my broader question was really um, because I, I can see that there's a there is a, a movement afoot in some of the uh, American states to to break this kind of relationship. Whatever whatever may have been going on, it's not seen as a healthy one. So yeah, well, that's a, that's a, an, another issue. Should 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 the American uh, security forces be taking advice from a country whose security forces have a, an egregious record on human rights? Yeah. Now that is certainly true, and you could back that up, and there's plenty of evidence, you know, for it, etc. They shouldn't. I always actually argue that Israel has a dreadful record in terms of security and terrorism by the fact that actually it has seen um, so many. Uh, civilians over the years, you know, killed in acts of violence. Now, that's actually uh, the presumption is that somehow just being tough and using force is the best way of dealing with, you know, people who may want to use violence, as opposed to winning the political argument of demonstrating, you know, there is no sense that uh, if you want to uh, continually occupy people, impose martial law, well, that, that represents a security risk. That is a failure. Uh, right from the beginning, you are going to get a, a, a response. 
uh, however unpleasant. So mm -hmm. I think that, yes, definitely. I don't think Israel, you know, should be um, partnering up with the United States in such security cooperation. Uh, and vice versa, the United States doesn't have a very uh, a great human rights record either. <laughs> Gideon, if I might turn to you, I mean, looking at the situation on the ground in Palestine, there's been a lot of uh, criticism of the Palestinian leadership. Uh, clearly, there's uh, the uh, the there's been there's been a, a, a long history of dispute between Fatah in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza, obviously, but they're they're really. Uh, has been some pretty sharp criticism coming and from many Palestinians as to the failure uh, of political leadership. Um, what, what is the likely reaction from the Palestinian leadership to this possible annexation? Um, and and what, what probably, it's probably not for you to be advising the Palestinians, but what do you think a lot of Palestinians would like to see happen in terms of their political leadership? Most of the Palestinians I know, and I'm referring to grassroots and not to, to politicians, they are totally despaired. I mean, the last 20 years, the Palestinians lost any hope from any leadership. It's not only the division, it's not only the disappointment from the Arab world, who totally had abandoned them. It's also about feeling that they go nowhere. And really, let's be frank, the Palestinians tried everything. They tried violence and they tried diplomacy. They tried the legal uh, way and they, they tried other kind of uh, non-violent protests and nothing is working for them. Nothing is working for them. They are today, in my view, at their worst situation ever, ever since 48. Uh, with, with really very little interest in the world, very little solidarity and above all lacking as you say the leadership which can somehow lead them toward a better future and uh, and we can only regret it i hope the new generation because this generation is still bleeding after the second uprising the second intifada they paid a hell of a price i mean also israelis paid but the palestinians were really crashed and smashed in this intifada and, and what we see now is an outcome of, of the consequences of the second uprising. It will take, I think, another generation until something new will emerge, hopefully something better. But you, I mean, you, you talked about this emerging generation. Um, uh, I mean, you, you must be coming across people that you, you can see great potential in, um, have got courage have got an idea about where they want to take things. I mean, you know, we don't, it's, it's, it's kind of a rather sad picture that's being painted. We're all doing it, looking at the state of uh, Palestine's leadership now. But do, do you see that there, there are people who've got a real chance of emerging soon, of, of, of seizing, the, seizing the moment, uh, taking the zeitgeist? And also, and the other question is, you know, what is the likely reaction to uh, an annexation? Uh, in, uh, is there likely to be um, a, a violent response to it, do you think? Resistance? Both, uh, both questions are connected because what the Palestinians lack now is a spirit of struggle and they don't have it. You don't see it and therefore you don't also see individuals who are really promising figures, young generation, they really 
you see more and more people are concerned about their individual uh, existence, the individual future, getting food, getting career, trying to build some kind of future for the children, but not much more. So right now, I don't see neither the spirit nor the leadership which can use this spirit. And therefore, I think that annexation might pass here. You know, there will be some sporadic uh, protests and here and there, there might be also violent uh, incidents, but don't expect a third uprising, not now. Mm. What's your view, Chris? I would agree with that. I don't think that the Palestinians are, are, are ready for that. And I think so many Palestinians sort of almost see the annexation has already been done as far as they're concerned. Yes, there are going to be some Palestinians who are going to get kicked out of certain areas of land that will be annexed. They're going to lose the lands in some of the settlement blocks that are theirs. But overall, I think they're already resigned. There's a resignation uh, on this issue that we haven't seen before. Uh, the disconnect with Gaza goes into that. And it is now. I mean, the, the Palestinian leadership has now got itself into a situation where there are so few options for it. What can it really do? And the whole mechanism of Israeli occupation that has been established, particularly over the last, you know, 25 years, is one where it's so difficult to get a really mass protest because of the way in which the Israeli armed forces, security forces, can lock down different areas of the West Bank and separate them out from one another that the Palestinians are now hidden away behind walls and fences, etc., not to be seen. And that's what that's their role. They are meant to sort of disappear, be quiet, be forgotten about. They're meant to be um, some sort of marginalized community in the times to come that, you know, people will reference as some, like, uh, I don't know, the Baha'is in Iran or some other uh, mysterious minority uh, who are meant to sort of disappear from the history books. Chris, it's interesting you're saying this. I mean, because, it, it, you know, we could be forgiven for thinking that, um, you know, the Palestinians have been so beaten back, they're so defeated by, by the past decades that actually they comprise a very small number of people who were all happily leave given half a chance. But we all know that the demographics don't really tell that story. And that actually the, uh, the history of... Um, of, of countries that really don't accommodate uh, and of uh, settlers uh, that don't accommodate uh, is, is not a good one. But where they do, it is, the story is different. And South Africa is one of those examples. Um, you'll recall that, that many Africans were hidden behind um, uh, artificial borders in the Transkei and Siskei and all of these places called Bantu Stans. But is it tenable? I suppose, I suppose that's my my, my, what, I, I don't think it's question. tenable. I'm just saying this is what um, is expected of the Palestinians by the Israelis who talk to settlers. They should just sort of be quiet and stop demanding for national rights and all these other mm. things that they shouldn't be entitled to. Of course, the Palestinians aren't going to disappear. They're not going to go away. It's not going to be so easy to sort of whitewash them out, out of the story, out of the narrative. Um, but right now, Gideon is right. They're at their lowest point. Uh, arguably in the history. I think they have very few options. Um, I'd be cautious of the demographics in the Israeli discourse. Uh, Gaza has been got rid of, so that's two million out of the way, so that they can then sort of try to pretend somehow that, uh, you know, you'll have the little statelet of Ramallah and the little statelet of you know, Nablus, that this somehow means they're no longer under Israeli control. Ah, so that's the two-state solution, is it? Is that the two-state <laughs> solution? 
it might be a 30 state solution but uh -huh. you know, yeah. you know, uh, I, I think that they see ways around the demographics no yeah. the palestinians um they need outside help they need a strategy they need leadership they need fresh leadership they need i think to uh, if I may say so, to, to renew their political system. Uh, you know, they need elections. They need uh, to find fresh blood. Uh, they have plenty of talent. It, it, they need just to be able to unlock it. Well, I mean, finally, if I can, if I can come to you both on this, I mean, uh, this is, uh, given our focus today is on the prospect of this further annexation of um, at least 30% of, uh, of the West Bank, um, given that uh, the plans may be in a degree of disarray, we may not see this kind of full-blown annexation, and there is but a narrow uh, window of opportunity before the U.S. presidential election, because that still matters. I mean, Gideon, can I ask you, does, would, a, would a Biden victory make a great deal of difference? Some difference? No difference. I think there will be a difference. I wish it wouldn't be Biden because the other candidates were much more promising in terms of uh, the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Uh, Biden is the most friendly uh, of all of the Democrat leaders, friendly to Israel, obviously, and friendly to the occupation. But I cannot see even Biden agreeing for, to annexation. And I cannot see it also, as Chris rightly mentioned, the changes within the Democratic Party. I cannot see any Democratic president just ignoring uh, Israel's crimes. It, it will be just impossible. Something must change. Look at what is happening in the campuses in the United States. There is a new generation, including some Jews also, who say enough is enough. We are not going to continue to support it blindly and automatically. So Biden is a tiny, tiny hope, a tiny light in this darkness, but a very tiny one. Chris? I, I would agree with that on Biden. I think that, uh, you know, he will be vulnerable to, from pressure within his own party in a way that Trump isn't vulnerable to pressure uh, from any, any side on this. I think also, you know, the, I think the real danger on, on annexation right now is that there will be some small annexation. And so that they will annex the Gush Etzion block, the Adamween block. They will then challenge the European Union and, and other parties to, to take some action saying, this is a tiny annexation of areas that everybody presumed is going to go to Israel anyhow. Are you really going to upset the apple cart over this? And so you, you started off. It's just how settlements started, you know, a little bit of some settlements here, then some more here, and then some more here. So we may get into a process of, you know, a bit of annexation here. So this, this month it might be Gush Etzion, and the next month uh, they'll start uh, annexing settlements uh, further up the north, and then some in the Jordan Valley. And each and every time, the European Union and other uh, countries will have to march uh, everybody up the hill to protest about it once again, and maybe a few delays. So I think this bit-by-bit -bit approach uh, would be very, very dangerous. Uh, in some ways, it would be the smart move of Netanyahu to do it like that. To, uh, because once one annexation has gone through, it's easier to do the next one. Right, well, on that rather somber note, um, I think we're going to bring uh, today to a close. And thank Gideon uh, in Tel Aviv, uh, 
Chris in London very much for joining us today at Palestine Deep Dive. That's all for us, actually, uh, probably for the summer. Uh, we're going to be back in the autumn. Uh, thank you for watching and increasing numbers of you are doing so. Um, we hope we're providing um, uh, an alternative uh, view, if you like. We're presenting uh, a different uh, and more informed and deeper discussion of issues around Israel and Palestine. And we thank you for all of your contributions. Unfortunately, uh, some of you weren't able to send in your questions today, but when we're back in September, you'll be able to do so. But thank you once again to, to both Gideon and Chris, and from all of us at Palestine Deep Dive, until next time, goodbye.